Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hey Founded, the podcast for Boston startups. I'm your host, Justin, and today we'll be talking to Ben Weber, CEO and co-founder of Humanize. Born out of the MIT Media Lab, Humanize is a leading behavioral analytics firm dedicated to helping organizations improve by unlocking the hidden potential within their people. We'll explore how Ben and his team use data-driven insights to make better decisions for their startup and how you can apply these lessons to your own venture. So without further ado, let's jump into the conversation. Starting off, it would be great to hear about, you know, you as well as your company, how you guys got started. Um, this show is really intended for early stage startups. And so kind of understanding that that early, the early developments of you, uh, your product, your team, uh, and et cetera, are, you know, a great place for us to start. Sure. So to give you some background um, on myself, so yeah, I'm one of the co-founders of this company called Humanize, which spun off of the PhD research of my co-founders and I back at MIT, really around trying to use data to understand work, collaboration, and how those those patterns relate to outcomes we care about. Um, and, and again, I started even doing this for research because I always assumed, I guess, that when companies made big people decisions, you know, do a reorg, build a new headquarters, well, I, f- I figured, of course, you know, these really successful companies must use a lot of data and run tests to make those decisions. And I very quickly found out that basically what they all do is sort of, you know, copy each other and read articles about what everyone else is doing. But, you know, you could really ask any of them very simple questions about what goes on internally, right? Like how much does the management team talk to engineering or even how many hours people work? And they, they don't even know the answer to those questions. And, you know, of course, now with all the tools we use for work, we have, you know, email, chat, meeting data, we even have sensors in the real world. The question is, from all that data, what really predicts outcomes we care about? And so a lot of our research was on figuring out what actually mattered for those outcomes. And, um, you know, so we're fortunate during our PhDs, go to real companies, collect real data, and then towards the end of our PhDs, actually change how companies were being managed based on our analyses. And so then we had companies coming to us saying, hey, we'll pay you to do this. And so that sounded good. And so we started the company. And, you know, fast forward to today, we're now, you know, we're deployed globally across a number of Fortune 100 companies, you know, across literally every single employee there. We have the largest data set of workplace interaction in the world. Um, so it's been, it's only been, you know, an interesting journey going from, you know, doing this for research and having trouble getting data from a couple hundred people to, you know, even for single customers now getting data from hundreds of thousands of people. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that intro. I really appreciate it. I think um, for today's episode, it would it make most sense to ask you uh, questions around making data-driven decisions for your startup. Um, and more specifically, again, hearing how you made those decisions as an early entrepreneur sure. um, with, you know, very limited data, actually, yes. and yes. Um, having to kind of make decisions that feel probably a lot more like bets. Um, yeah. I'm just kind of curious. I'll start off with my first question. So sure. you're starting out as an entrepreneur. How did you and your team determine which metrics were most important to track and how did you prioritize them? Yeah. And so, um, again, we were actually really fortunate because even before we graduated, we actually landed customers and we didn't start working on them until like after we finished our PhDs. It was literally like the next week we started working on it. And so, but again, we also didn't take funding for the first, I don't know, like two or three years of our existence. Um, and so, you know, the, the financial metrics are always the things that, that we were looking at first at that point, right? Which is just like, I needed to know how much runway we had. We started hiring people literally in that first month, but 
you're trying to figure out, well, how quickly should you hire? Um, and again, like, like you said, it was very frustrating because as someone who certainly likes to make validated data-driven decisions, you know, you can look at averages around, okay, you know, given what your revenue is this month, what is it likely going to be next month? And again, we had, you know, we could see revenue out a couple months, but, you know, looking at what a meta-analysis tells you about in general what matters, it, it sort of somewhat collapses when you look at an N of one, which is yourself. But so, so obviously like the financial metrics were very much top of mind at first. What also started happening very quickly though, was again, really all of our work is about the importance of collaboration. And as we started having customers, um, you know, not, they weren't all just in Boston and also, um, one of our co-founders, uh, Thomas Jano, who's, uh, was in Finland, um, he was with us in, in Boston finishing PhD at the same time and then was over there. So we, we had, you know, already from you know beginning folks who were working remotely and we wanted to make sure that, you know, especially with the small team, I think, I think the first month we were like four people or something. And we just wanted to make sure that, you know, on a daily basis, we were all talking to each other at least once. And this didn't involve like formal meetings every day. Um, it wasn't just standups. It was... Um, like I would literally just call people, um, and just say, Hey, how's it going? And, and again, like some of the time we would just talk about family stuff or just what's going, you know, personally going on. Um, and the rest of the time we talk about work stuff, but the idea is, and that was a cadence that I, I sort of have continued since then of just for all of my direct reports, making sure, you know, I talk to them once a day, no matter where I am, you know, at the same time, right? Like if they say I'm busy, then that's fine. And you know, I, I hang up and that's, but, but this idea of, especially when separated by distance, that was a, a huge, uh, that was one of the, the things we looked at is just making sure we hit that. Um, yeah. Right. So it's, it sounds like you went out of your way to make sure you were collecting as much information as you could around the business and what was going on, uh, amongst, you know, other team, team members as well. Um, okay, great. I think I'll move on to my next question. Um, I think it'd be interesting to hear if you can share maybe an example of a time when, you know, kind of having your finger on the pulse and being especially careful around data analysis um, and what's coming through the startup helped you make a critical decision uh, in the early stages. Yeah. It, it, and I guess, again, it, it's always challenging at this point because there are so many things when you're, especially when you're early, there are so many, you know, essentially random events that can dramatically sort of impact, you know, your fortunes, your results. I mean, I, I even, I remember I had one call with a customer that was, you know, for a whole variety of reasons, actually unrelated to, to us was thinking about, you know, canceling this, this very large deal that we had, which would have, um, you know, we probably would have had to shut down at that point and just like the call happened to go well. Um, and so you're able to keep the contract and that, you know, this is a sort of unrelated day, but the idea that that call sort of like if that call didn't go well for a whole variety of reasons, which it could have that felt well, we, we like wouldn't exist. Um, so there's always things like that, which are, you know, mostly beyond your control. Um, which, yeah, and we would, which actually dictate most of, you know, responses. But, but I think at the same time, it's sort of being cognizant of that that's important. And so this idea that, all right, what we're actually going to try to do on the customer. And so we were, you know, we're selling to, you know, to large enterprises, even then, even right when we started, 
you know, our, our first customers were, were still Fortune 500 companies, like they were so large. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is like, all right, we know the numbers for, um, you know, on average, given what year, you know, how many people you've got at the top of the pipe who they say they're interested, how, how, what is the likelihood that they get through? Because you don't have enough data at that point for us to say for, you know, human eyes specifically, here's what our actual close rate is going to be. You have no idea. You really, the best you can do is go off of, all right, here's the general stats. Let's assume that's what it is for us, even though we know it's wrong and let's, you know, let's make sure we're at least reaching out to something that will get us over the line that, you know, more likely than not of, of getting enough revenue. Right. You so know, you're, you're, you're yeah. saying using industry averages as your benchmark in the early days was helpful. Yeah. Well, and until, because until we had enough data, there it was not, you know, what do we have? Like two, two customers. Like there's just not enough data. <laughs> there's not enough data internally to be yeah. able to say like what your rates are. You have no idea. Given that your best bet early stages are those industry benchmarks right now you know we've now gotten to a point where that's no longer the case like we know for us we are different than everyone else but at first you can't know that and that is one of the things where like you have to be you know i at least didn't pay attention to the fact that like yes when we were at mit finishing our phds we got our first customer and so like we talked to someone we weren't even like proactively going out getting customers and we got one so if you were super naive, you'd say, wow, like everyone we talk to is going to be our customer. But like that would be a huge statistical mistake. Right. Obviously, it's impossible for us to know, you know, some of these things about our business. And so let's just use what those general results are until we have enough time and samples, which which is, is going to take a significant amount of time. Maybe unless you're a, you know, consumer startup, but we were not. I kind of have a tangent question uh, when it comes to maybe fundraising and then we can go back to everything else but how do you communicate that to investors um oh people who want to you, you know. don't communicate that to investors so this is the <laughs> thing about um so, so in a similar way with like raising money from investors it's a similar thing it's a numbers game right um and, and this is well documented right that like you got to talk to a number of people and it's just like the, the the success rates are quite low for a whole variety of reasons most of which is that um again especially the early stages there are no actual metrics that could be used right. to say like you're a good company because i mean like everyone's making up numbers at that point and anyone who pretend who says they're not is just lying right we're lying to themselves right like what is your total address what is your total addressable market like you don't know the vc doesn't know no one knows right you're you're making something up which is fine right it's fine and then you're telling a story right and so you know you sort of you know when you're raising money from VCs. I mean, what do we know about venture capitalists? They are in general, you know, sort of poor pattern recognition algorithms. Like that's all they are. And so as much as they say they want you to be a unique company, they actually want you to be like every other company they've invested in that's made a lot of money. Like that's what they want. Um, which again, being like a white guy, that certainly plays, you know, to my advantage, you know, white guy from MIT, like that, that makes it way easier for me than other people. Um, which is obviously like an actual problem for the industry, but in a similar way, like we know, all right, so when you're talking to investors, you, you, you know, you project confidence, you do all those things They they actually don't like to hear, oh, like we got a customer it was probably luck. Right. I mean, which is true, but they don't want to hear that. Um, and so you can't, I mean, again, this is a similar way of like your messaging to, to the audience there. Like you have to do that, um, until, you know, venture capital gets more sophisticated, um, which I'm not holding my breath, uh, then I, I don't think you can have those sort of, you know, very frank discussions about those things because pe- they will 
you know, for the foreseeable future, keep gravitating to people who have artificial confidence, even though that is provably a bad way to do things. Um, anyway. No, thank you. Um, I, you also mentioned gut checking kind of your data and yep. I'm wondering how do you, how did you mitigate biases early on? Yep. I guess, avoid confirmation bias, survivorship bias, uh, oh. both, both in terms of when you talk to a customer um, yeah. and also when you're talking to anyone about the idea in general, how do you avoid, yeah. you know, getting in your head and actually seeing reality for what it is? So one thing is that when we land a customer or when a customer leaves, it's very challenging because you sort of need to take yourself out of the equation as much as possible and say, all right, did this happen because of our process or did this happen just because like stuff happens and you just got unlucky, right? And it's it's hard to differentiate those, especially because you're emotionally invested in it, right? Um, but what's important is always like the actual process, right? And not, and this is hard, but it's sort of like, it's like, it's like sports, right? For people who, you know, follow basketball, there was the Western Conference Finals a number of years ago where it was the uh, Houston Rockets versus the Golden State Warriors. And the Houston Rockets took like a ton of threes, like 40 something free threes. And on that night, they happened to only hit, it was like 20 some percent of them. And they lost the game by like a couple of points. Yeah. And the strategy was correct of them taking a lot of threes, but it's a random number generator. And sometimes you, you don't hit as much as, as you would like. And so that was correct. And so in a similar way, when you're thinking about, you know, your startup, you get a, you get a large customer. The process by which you got that, is that something that other data would suggest is a good way to do things in which case like, okay, this is probably a reasonable thing to do. Or is it something that you can, you know, that you can't put something like that on and say like, hey, it's great that we got that customer, but you know, I actually didn't learn anything from that. Um, and, and, it, and that's important to try, you know, you're never gonna, you know, obviously have perfect clarity on these things. But I think, again, the important thing is to focus much more on the process than results, which is hard because, you know, the results do matter, of course, right? Like you get a customer, like that really does matter. That in terms of like longer term success, you're much more likely to be successful longer term if you are improving, you know, the pro like optimizing a process rather than optimizing our results. Okay. Also, like, it sounds like maybe going in with assuming that you're probably incorrect. Um... Yes. Yes. <laughs> So like, I, I guess the thing, like you need to have a strategy and you need to have an approach, right? So it's not to say, like you say, oh, we don't know anything. And so we're not going to do anything. Like, you still have to do something, right? And you have to be able to at least convince the people, you know, on your team that like, listen, we don't have all the data because we can't. Um, this is our best guess right now about what to do. But we also don't know if this is the correct strategy like because you don't, right? And but you know, we, we need, to, we need to try it. And so what we're going to do is for the next, you know, however long is it number of months is the next year we're going to do this. And if it were here, the metrics we're going to look at, right. And if it works great, then we're going to keep doing that. Well, expand. if it doesn't, we're going to try something else. And, and that's happened. You know, we, we had a, we, we tried to pivot to retail, um, stores early on for a while and it didn't work. Um, and we were pretty clear eyed about what metrics we were going to look at. And it was, you know, clear after like six months, that wasn't, going to result in increased business. So we stopped doing it and that sucked because we had sunk, sunk a lot of effort into it. But again, if you're willing to at least be trans, like, so it's the, you know, sort of like strong beliefs, weekly held type thing. It's like, you gotta, you gotta push through on it, but that when you get, you know, you know, certain data that you set out before, like if we get this number, we're going to change. Uh -huh. 
you know, people are so good at talking themselves into finding other reasons to do something, but you really have to, you know, have confidence in sort of the more, you know, statistical approach that, yeah, like you laying out these conditions beforehand can be much more rational than you in the heat of the moment. And so that is, you know, that's in general going to be a better way to do things. It's kind of funny because to start a startup, you have to be a, quite a convicted person. Yeah. Um, yet when you're actually running it, if you're too convicted, that can be extremely detrimental. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, like statistically starting a startup is a terrible idea, right? <laughs> like, I mean, just it is, right? Like in all likelihood, you're going to fail. And mm. it's important to understand that because you're going to fail. And the reason you're going to fail is not because you did everything wrong or you did even a lot of things wrong it's just like you probably didn't get lucky right and that sucks it sucks right but like that is the reality if you go into it knowing that though you say well why am i doing this because again if you're doing it to make a lot of money like you're almost certainly going to be disappointed right and that's a probably real like maybe you'll learn some stuff which is fine but you, you know in general at least it's my perspective is that like i really care about what i do and i it was of the opinion when we started the company that if we didn't do this, that no one else is going to do this, right? And, you know, again, the idea that millions of people hate their jobs and not for complex reasons, right? But like the work environment sucks, right? And right. and that's measurable, right? And so at the, at the end of my PhD, I could point to thousands of people who measurably, you know, like their jobs better, made more money and their companies made more money. So we did. And so that was worth my time. And the idea was that, all right, if we start a company that actually, you know, I had two choices. I could stay in academia and try to keep mm -hmm. writing, you know, papers on it, which, you know, I actually didn't enjoy writing the paper part, but that was one way you could go if you want to impact this. You know, what was frustrating to me about that was that that took, took a huge amount of time to actually have an impact. Right. And by starting the company, I mean, you know, people analytics is now is, what is it? The second fastest growing job title on LinkedIn today. Like that's crazy. Like it didn't exist. Really? Okay. And not, not that we can claim sole credit for that, but we can certainly, I think, plausibly claim some of the credit for that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, I, you can't possibly think that's what you're going to do. But again, this idea that I cared about this problem, I thought we were doing was valuable, that I couldn't do it anywhere else, you know, even if it failed, that was still worth my time to 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 do. Um, but then, yes, once you're in the thick of it, then you still have to, you know, have conviction that what you're doing, you know, is important and right and, you know, big opportunity at some level. But that can't if you use that and to make yourself blind to criticism or outside data, like more, you're going to be even more likely to fail. Right. Um, yeah. No, so, so true. Um, I, I, I'll let you know if I blow up on, on accident, but, um, <laughs> I think something that informed my decision to kind of lean into the projects that I've been working on with my friends is just the ability to learn. And even if things do not work out, you know, I went to BU, I got a good degree. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure I can find a job. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, I got, you know, an opportunity, I have an opportunity here to learn a ton really fast yes. about yes. a specific thing I want to learn about. So I might yeah. as well take it. No, no, um, th that is also a good reason. So it is also a good reason to start it, you know, company to, to learn. But again, you have to be very clear eyed about why you're doing it. Like right. doing it to learn, doing it because of the application. Those are both like, those are both totally reasonable, fine reasons. I guess, again, I'm bringing it up because like doing it to make money is like probably the worst reason because no, sure. Yeah. Like, which, but I think that's what a lot of people, like a lot of people are like, I'm going to do this because that's like the thing. And if I follow all the steps in these books that all these people put, you know, 
put out that I'm going to be successful. And if I read the lean startup, I will invest. Exactly. And you're like, no, you, you're, your probability of success is still like almost none. Right. And that's just, that's just the reality. Like reading those books, that doesn't, that doesn't change it very much at all. Right. Mm -hmm. And so again, later on, if you happen to, you know, to, to get pretty lucky early on, then it does get more likely. Right. And then at a certain point, then, you know, some outcome becomes likely great. Right. But like to get to that point, you know, what is it? 90 plus percent of startups will go away by, I mean, even more than that will go away by that point. Right. Um, I was always confused by that metric because, you know, when they're collecting the 90%, um, whatever that are going to fail or how many of that is just someone created a domain and, you know, quit like a week later. Yeah. Like, at what stage are they defining like startup started? Yeah. I mean, again, and I'm not like, I've, you know, read a bunch of papers in the space. I'm obviously, I'm not, a, you know, an entrepreneurship, you know, academic scholar, but my understanding, <laughs> well, so my understanding is that there's, there's, there's different ways, of course, to measure it. Um, typically, they are looking at um, incorporation records um, yeah. that are literally, like at least in the U.S. data, it's incorporation rec records that you submit to the government when you incorporate an entity, right? So you've at least gone through some work and you spent some money to incorporate an entity, right? Um, there is work distinguishing tech startups from, you know, just general entrepreneurship, like you said, a restaurant or things like that. Um, yeah. Right. And so there, there's different work trying to differentiate them. Normally they are using those corporate records or at least that you started a company. Um, and again, then the, the outcome data is what actually tends to be like even harder. So normally it's, it's pretty easy. Like you can tell they fail if the thing just goes away and there's no record of anything. Like you're like, okay, that's pretty straightforward. But then it gets harder saying like, all right, because especially for like, you know, unless, you know, TechCrunch reports on it, right? Like, you don't hear about it. So if company X gets acquired for like $5 million, right? Like you might hear about it, but you might not. And it might not be in the data, right? So, you know, it's, let's say it's maybe a slightly conservative estimate, but it, again, it, it's not, it, it's highly unlikely to be that far off, um, especially because there are places outside the US where they have better data on these things that show similar effects. And so you can feel pretty good about, about some of these things. Um, and, you know, essentially, what do you see, right? It's in the data you see, like, at initial stage, like, before funding, it's like, it's just a graveyard, right? And then you get from, like, C to A, and it's another graveyard. Yeah. And you get from A to B, and it's starting to look a little bit better, but it's still a graveyard. And then it's like, okay, you get after that, it's like, all right, it starts to look like more likely than not, something's going to happen. But, like, that, you have to get through a lot of these steps, and it's, like, graveyards in between these. And, again, it's the survivorship bias when people talk about what works is just so prevalent it's mm. it's sort of insane and so that's why i i can't um like even for myself like i can point to many specific examples that i know were random like for a fact and that's like why we survived right right um and i think it's important to keep that in mind because also it means that even if you get to like the point that we've gotten to humanize like don't don't drink your own kool-aid Right? right. Like you probably did some things right. You probably also got super lucky. So like you probably don't know that much more than than everyone else. And you probably still need to keep, you know, keep gut checking yourself with external data. I mean, we do that just to be clear, right? Like even at Humanize, we have enough internal data to know like what our, you know, sales cycles are like, like going to be and things like that. But, you know, you always wonder, right? Like how random have things been? And you don't really ever totally know. And so you always want to just be like how confident should i be in these things 
right? And you never should be 100% confident. That means you're you're overconfident, right? The idea of saying, okay, here's where your numbers are. This is what everyone else is reporting. If you're super off, like, all right, maybe I have slightly less confidence um, that I did that this is real and not just that we're some weird aberration for a variety of reasons, or it's, huh, it matched up pretty well. I can feel like a lot more confident, right? That's, again, it doesn't mean you dis disregard your data and only look at the, the benchmarks, but it should, it should moderate how you interpret um, your own numbers. Right, for sure. I think it's, I, I appreciate this insight, by the way, because I think a lot of people online um, are tend to kind of be overly encouraging to people to go ahead and quit their jobs and start a startup, which is um, a little concerning um, <laughs> because, yeah, people should probably be level-headed, right, as they enter yep. this and understand the risks associated and probably be able to say, hey, we're probably not going to be able <laughs> right. And so it, it's like, again, if you if you're encouraging people because it's like, I want to learn, uh, you know, certain things about management, you know, and running a business, which, you you know, it's going to be way harder to learn in a big organization like that. That is fine. If you want to do it because you're trying to, you know, you know, you really care about a particular issue and it's going to be way harder to do that in another organization. Like that is also a good reason. But like th those are the, the reasons like don't do like, oh, it's good. Like if you just follow all these steps and it's going to be successful. It's like that's that's just not how this works right. um unfortunately i mean like it great if it did it just it's just it's very clear that it doesn't it, it doesn't work like that exactly I, I saw this one stat um or i listened to it on a podcast yeah. it was y combinator explaining their batch process one percent they accept one percent of companies into a batch and only one percent of those companies or it might be two percent actually become um you know profitable returns you know and, and that's an organization that has disproportionate visibility Oh, right. Sure. And you're, you're going into a bash though. And you're thinking, wow, I'm in Y Combinator. Yes. I mean, I have this startup. I'm about to be a billionaire. Look at, yep. look at me. There's a 99% chance you're not going to be anything. No, no, that's so like, and that's what's interesting because a lot of these things do become in some cases, eventually like self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Like eventually getting, you know, investment from one of like the top VC firms, for example, right? They you know, they're on the boards of a lot of the tech companies that would eventually acquire you. They also, you know, have board seats or own other companies that might acquire you. And so even eventually it just becomes like in their best interest just to assure like there's some outcome, even if like if they, they lose money on it, like they can do something like that and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So there are things like that, which again, it's not anything about the business itself. It's just like structurally where they are, right? And so again, I think that why, why Combinator at least being transparent about that is so helpful because it says this is a a platform that still has rightly or wrongly that just you know disproportionate visibility and yet companies are still failing at very very high rates which implies that it's not like they don't have a magic process right which is what that that implies right it implies okay like this is still like extremely risky and like yes you will learn some things but like <laughs> the point at which you could say like i'm going to be a billionaire is like so so far in the future um probably only when you are a billionaire yeah <laughs> pretty pretty much right and you know and this as folks like elon musk have shown like you can also destroy tens of billions of dollars like very quickly maybe at that point so maybe you don't get super complacent you know but like you got into y combinator that's great what is the process by which you did that what what are the things you can learn from that right because you actually don't learn that much from saying you got it you don't Right. Um, and this is it, it's always hard to say, OK, what what part of the process 
you know, was good that I should do more of that I should lean in on. And it, it you know, I, I think that's what's really important. Like, yes, results should slightly update, you know, your your prior beliefs, but they shouldn't dramatically override them um, unless you, you learn just something super new about the environment. But it's, su- it's really unlikely that you actually learn anything like that. So just, you know, try to have that perspective, even, even when you are successful, I think. Okay. I have a few more questions I want to ask you. Um, one is you, you kind of, I was going to ask you what you would have done differently in the past using yeah. data to inform your decisions. Um, and I, I think you mentioned going into retail. Kind of curious what informed that strategy. Uh, we pro- probably wouldn't have done that if, uh, okay. yeah, I mean, but, but that was just, again, it was, there was like, so we got in our seed round, um, two of our investors um, actually had a lot of retail analytics experience and there was some reason that we thought that could be good. So solid biases here. Yeah, well, it, it was more, it, it, so it's not even just biases, it's that like they had connections with companies they could introduce and so they were, they were able to introduce okay. us to all these companies, right? So it's like we got more leads from it, it just turns out that like they didn't close and there are reasons in hindsight that I can understand why it didn't close. But I don't think you know, so if I've, so again, now knowing what I know, I wouldn't have done that. And we would have saved, you know, six months, a year of time on that. Um, I mean, one of the other things I guess that, that is probably a really big lesson for me in this relates to, to my business, but, but it's also, I think a more general point during our PhDs, we collected a lot of data about, um, how work happens. So we collect data from sensors, looking at face-to-face interaction. And later during at Humanize, we actually made sort of next generation of these sensors, sort of like next generation ID badges, which could get very accurate data on face-to-face interaction. We had added on, and so the thing is, even during our PhDs, we collected data like email and meeting data, all that stuff. And the reason that actually, so as a company for the first like five years of our existence, we, or four, yeah, five years of our existence, we, we led with that sensor data collection. And the reason was that the data is much more predictive of outcomes, right? So having, so face-to-face interaction is about an order of magnitude, more predictive of, again, employee attrition, performance, what have you, right? It's just, it's better, right? The thing is, right, is that sensors are expensive, right? And that it's very, very hard. So again, we don't, we don't give individual data to companies. We don't even collect names or email addresses. So we couldn't really give people like you wear these these new badges, you don't really get anything back from it. And so I was so myopically focused on the accuracy of the, you know, of our metrics that, you know, but again, I was sort of focused at the wrong level of resolution. I was focused on like, okay, if I am trying to, if I have complete data for you, what is my predictive power on this metric? And from that perspective, getting sensor data is always better than the other stuff. Like it's just so much more predictive. However, from saying, okay, I'm now looking over a company of 100,000 people, and I can't guarantee that people are going to use these things. What happens at predictive power? Well, it turns out that once uh, less than 60% of people, um, you know, are wearing these devices regularly, their predictive power drops compared to, you know, is lower than just all the digital stuff. Right. And so we should have run the numbers on that, but like we, we'd spent a ton, we, we, again, it was sort of just sunk cost bias, right? We'd spent a ton of time and money in investing in these things. And so eventually we did drop them, but it took us way longer than it should have because I became like emotionally invested in like that this is the right thing because data is correct, which is like, yes, in a vacuum, the sensor data is the correct way to do things. And that is much more predictive. However, in the real world for the foreseeable future, that is, it's not that it's just not true. 
right? Right. Um, people people don't want to wear it, right? Yeah, well, it's that it, it it's cumbersome. You have to you know, charge it every other day, right? It's it, it you know from a privacy perspective. Even though we give you know we gave people consent forms, we showed them database tables, we collect, we gave like, the legal contract between us and the users that we weren't going to share the data. Like we did all those things. Even with that, right. at larger scales, it becomes very challenging to communicate like that commitment to privacy and and all those things. And it still feels so. There's, there's a whole variety of reasons that we shouldn't have done that. At, after a certain point, once it became clear that, all right, like there is an appetite for these kind of analytics, but you know, so I, I think those are the things, again, like when, even when you think about what metrics you're focusing on, like I, you know, hopefully have done a better job, you know, more recently about, all right, are we looking at it at the right sort of scale? Because you might say, oh, our system is more accurate than someone else at this amount. But like the question is, is that the correct thing to optimize for, right? Like we were optimizing for accuracy of metrics, assuming hundred percent compliance we should have done is like optimizing for metrics at 60% compliance or 50% compliance, right? And so I think for other systems too, it's like we pretend that even being data-driven means you're optimizing on the right thing where the question of course is always like, what should you optimize for? And there's no right answer for that. There's no right answer for it, right? Which is which is the problem. But like that's, I think knowing that, you know, whenever you choose something to optimizing for, optimize for that is, there's nothing objective about that, right? It's just, you know, and that you have to, question that even even if you feel good about it did you before the, before you sent out the badges for the first time did you yep. guys talk to customers talk to users about how they would feel comfortable like whether or not oh yeah well, well so wearing this is, yeah well so this is like at mit this is what we were doing right so we actually had a lot of experience at mit doing this where and essentially what we what we did in humanize is we, we we took even the 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 irb form the internal review board form that we used at, at mit we basically sort of you know, took MIT's name out of it and everything like that. But it's basically, it was essentially the same, right? About like, you know, this opt-in, we can give you a fake badge if you don't want. So we had a whole communication strategy that actually we developed back at MIT when, you know, we'd screwed up at a bunch of experiments at MIT, like sort of showed up at a company and then no one participated. And you're like, well, that sucks, right? <laughs> um, and but we, then we figured out how to do it. Then we got really good at rolling them out. But we got really good at rolling them out with high participation rates at scales of like hundreds of people. Right. Um, and, and that it required like, again, it, like you did town hall meetings. So it, it, it was a whole process and we got like, very good at it. And I think that's necessary. So first of all, I think that's necessary. Right. Um, but again, I'm, I'm sort of out of the perspective now, like eventually that kind of data will probably arrive in that as, you know, newer kinds of, you know, corporate IDs get rolled out, then you'll eventually get these sort of things, longer discussion about that. But, um, yeah, we had to spend a lot of time. I mean, it was, it was years essentially developing that, um, we were just fortunate that we were able to do that in grad school and to actually get really good at it like beforehand, because otherwise we like, there's no way we would have survived the first couple of customers because we wouldn't have had anyone participate because we wouldn't know what we're doing. I, I think I, I only have two more questions left for you. Sure. One is I'm curious about how you see the future of analytics and insights for enterprises, how companies are going to become stronger at, you know, using predictive power to analyze the capabilities of their business yep. and just where you see this industry going. I, I mean, I think in general that, you know, it, it, it's extremely clear that making data-driven decisions about business just outperforms gut all the time. And so I have no doubt that organizations are, you know, going to move to this ever more towards this more data-driven experimental model of management. 
Um, the progress, frankly, has been a lot slower than I'd like. Um, but what is very interesting right now is you get a lot of um, uh, large investment firms. You look at KKR, you look at State Street, BlackRock, that are essentially requiring companies, either that they own or that they have board seats on, um, report out different people-related metrics. And then they're actually tying that, either tying that to executive compensation or saying, if you don't hit certain targets, we will not pay executives, right? So that tends to motivate people pretty quickly. And so I think that where a lot of this will eventually go is that right now, large companies, especially like the things that they report publicly about their businesses are primarily financial and don't actually tell you how well managed they are um, completely, right? You know, for example, with the, the tech layoffs that happened, you know, was it early in the year at these big companies, all those CEOs should be fired. Right? So statistically, they all destroyed billions of dollars right. in value, right? Because doing massive layoffs is just a stupid, stupid management decision. Unless your business is going to fail, you know, if, if you don't, you know, again, if your business is going to fail unless you do it, fine, right? But pretty much the data is extremely consistent in every other situation. This is really bad. Now, the fact that those CEOs are not fired is because, again, right now it's acceptable to just copy what everyone else is doing and like you're not going to get fired. Right. But as investors start to say, okay, well, I, I need to see, right? You were, you were clearly doing something on the people side of business. How did that decision affect that, right? Because right now what's happening is essentially you have companies borrowing from these, these people metrics to sort of juice their profitability over the next couple of quarters, but that, you know, medium to long term is going to severely hurt the business. And so what's going to happen is that's going to become clear. Right now, that's opaque. You can't see that. What's going to happen is now as we have data, not just companies can use to drive decisions, but investors will use to evaluate these companies. They'll say, mm -hmm. well, that was terrible. You're fired, right? Right. Um, that's what's actually going to happen. And that will really accelerate things. And so I think that's, you know, where this will go. Again, this is, you do have to be though at a certain scale to really make use of a lot of these technologies that are looking at, um, you know, networks within companies, behavioral patterns, you need to get over like a couple hundred people before they start doing things and they get even more powerful at larger scales. And so it is interesting to think about, I think eventually people, there are some folks developing tools for small businesses. There's folks like Laboratech actually in Japan doing some, I'm on their board, so full, full disclosure. Um, but very interesting things at, at that scale about, you know, trying to show companies how they compare to each other even when they're small. And I think that stuff can be, can be helpful. So, so I think there are things that will eventually make it more widely accessible um but but that's probably where it'll go right that's very cool um i always ask this question um to early stage startups i'm kind of curious what your take is it's the yeah. last question i ask uh what is the future vision of humanize where do you see the business going i think that the flavor of analytics that we provide will be standard like everyone will have to use them and i think that they will be analytics that Again, investors use to evaluate companies. They, they will become quite normal for people to be paid based on these metrics. Um, I think with that, there are also a lot of concerns that I have about where you know the company, the technology goes. In the sense that, as soon as you start, you know, we've been very careful about like we don't give individual data to companies, but we do give data at the you know team level, right? And so theoretically, you could use that to evaluate, you know, algorithmically manage the company. That is sort of a personal scientifically like a really bad idea because our analytics, no matter how accurate they are on certain things, like we actually don't know what the business is doing. We have no idea. Right. right. And so, you know, should you use these metrics in conjunction with a, you know, subjective contextual understanding of teams of the business to make decisions? Absolutely. But that whether it's companies, whether it's investors, 
sort of just blindly making decisions based on these metrics. I really worry about that. And so I do think that is a concern that I have about where I eventually see this technology go. And so, you know, there are some things that we're trying to do right now that will make that less likely. There's some friction that actually we have in the product that make it so you can't, like we're not connected to the HR system. So you just can't click on like, here's a team that looks terrible and you click on it. So there's things like that you can do. But I think this is where, you know, especially regulation is is very necessary. I mm-hmm. think it's also like, again, it's just incumbent on firms like us just to, you know, to be all, always aware about things like that. So I, I think there is a, a ton of potential, you know, still remaining, right? Despite the fact that the field is growing very quickly. But, um, you know, I think with that, we we just have to be aware of what our like responsibility is and also again it's, it's also a responsibility to say like all right as much as we'd like to regulate ourselves as much as we think like i'm not biased and like i know how to regulate ourselves like we don't right mm-hmm. like this like governments exist to regulate folks like us and so i think it, it's also our responsibility to be transparent about what we you know think and know but also just to lay lay it out there so that regulators can regulate us and if they say certain things we're doing is bad then i don't want to do those but i think we do things in the right way right, right now but i think that that's going to be you know more and more important over time um and i think that will ultimately be helpful not just for the industry but for just work in general when we have more regulation in the space right for sure okay well thank you ben i really appreciate it um this was super insightful and uh, i'll make sure to contact you if i have to make any data-driven decisions so thank you so much sure it was great talking to you justin take care